I'm the common denominator in every bad decision I've ever made. Like, I, I mean, of course, there have been uh, outside pressure, there have been different people involved, there have been circumstances that have been a part of that, but the one piece of the puzzle that was there for all of them was me. And the same is true for you. Our decisions, my decisions, your decisions, reactions, our non-reactions, or our overreactions all played the most important role in the life that we now currently live. And our future decisions and our future reactions and our future responses will play the most critical role in what becomes our destiny. Well, that's a, that's a big word. That's a loaded word, isn't it? What does that word mean? Some people believe that a destiny is, uh, is a predetermined course of events by an irresistible power. Like it is encoded in you and no matter what, you're gonna meet your destiny. You're gonna end up at your destiny that it's already defined. Or is the destiny just what happens to you in the future? Is it some kind of power like fate that directs every steps or do you have some say in the matter? But come on, let's, let's be real, let's be real. If it's encoded into every day and if it is fate that is directing your steps and no matter what you do, what is gonna happen is gonna happen, then let's scrap this series and go live it up, amen? But you know that's not true. Because you know that decisions matter. Decisions matter. They make a difference. They impact. You can see the consequences of good decisions and bad decisions. You're living with some of your good decisions and maybe some of your bad decisions and maybe you've been impacted by other people's good decisions or bad decisions. We all know that that's just kind of part of the story, that decisions matter. They impact our lives. They, they impact every single day. Now, I believe that God has a destiny in mind for all of us. The Bible seems to paint a picture that God has a plan for our lives. Now, don't get me wrong. The last book, it's already written. God is, and God is working right now to reveal his kingdom in the world. But he wants you and I to play a part in it. He has a way that you and I can be involved in it. But he won't make us do it because he made us so that our decisions matter. Hey, if you're new here today, my name's Carter McInnes. I'm so honored to be with you uh, and uh, glad you're here. And if you're brand new or your last few weeks, I'd love to meet you out at Meet the Pastor afterward. You, we're in the middle of this series, Defining Moments. And today we're gonna talk about a defining moment for a man named Saul who made a wrong decision that made all the wrong kind of a difference. Now you may have heard of King David. He is the most famous of all the kings of Israel uh, and he's a super important figure. Uh, this September, uh, I'm gonna teach a series on King David because I think we have so much to learn uh, from his life, sometimes what to do and sometimes what not to do. 
But though he is the most famous and probably the most important king over Israel, he wasn't the first and he wasn't even the first choice. That honor goes to a man named Saul. Now this is not to be confused with the Saul of the New Testament who would become the Apostle Paul. That's a different Saul. This is a Saul of the Old Testament and he was the first king over Israel. He reigned for about 40 years. We don't know exactly how old he was when he became king. Most scholars think that he was between 20 and 50. The original text don't exactly say how old he was, but he was not a boy king and he wasn't like some kings took over later in their life. So he was a, a full grown man. And let me just tell you about Saul. He, he, was, he was handsome, he was tall. Uh, before they had the word presidential, he, he was kingly. He was just kingly. This guy looked the part. And God chose him to be the first king over Israel. The people had clamored for a king. They were a people without a king. They had judges, they had spiritual leaders, but they didn't have a king. So they had begged for a king. So if God was gonna choose a king, it was gonna be his kind of king. And he would use the prophet and judge Samuel to help identify who this king would be. Samuel goes through all the villages just kind of waiting on a voice from God. Like just like, hey, bring me, all the, bring me all the people up here. Let me just see if one looks good. And then in 1 Samuel 9, um, he finds somebody that looks the part. We're gonna be camping out in 1 Samuel today. It's a, a little bit, one verse in chapter nine, but really in mostly in chapters 10 and 13. If you got your Bibles at home, um, or if you're here and you got your app open, uh, we'd love to do that. And listen, if you don't have a hard copy, uh, grab one on the way out if you're here. This is what it says in 1 Samuel 9, when Samuel gets to Saul's village and they bring him out among others. When Samuel caught sight of Saul, the Lord said to him, this is the man. This is the man I spoke to you about. He will govern my people. God chooses the best he can find. He sees something in Saul and God has big plans for him. If Israel is going to have a king, then God wants to start a monarchy that will reveal him through the ages. And Samuel picks out Saul and he has this kind of inauguration, anointing, um, commissioning in Verse 10, this is what it reads in 1 Samuel 10. <clears throat> then Samuel took a flask of olive oil and poured it on Saul's head and kissed him saying, has not the Lord anointed you ruler over his inheritance? Wow. The spirit of the Lord will come powerfully upon you and you will prophesy with them and you will be changed into a different person. Once these signs were fulfilled, this, this is unbelievable. Do whatever your hand finds to do, for God is with you. God wants good for Saul, and he sets him up for success. It says that you will become like a different person, that I will be with you, and whatever your hand finds to do, I'm gonna get, grant you success. God is with you. Sometimes when we teach the stories of the kings, especially Saul and David, Sometimes there's this narrative that Saul was kind of an accidental king or he wasn't really the king God wanted. He really wanted David in the first place. Does, does that sound like what this says? No, like this is the man. 
Samuel, this is the guy, and I'm going to put my spirit on him. I'm going to grant him success at whatever he does. I am with him. And I, here's what I want you to know that is true for Saul and I think is true for us in our destinies, okay? And you got to believe this before we get to the next steps in understanding the story. God wants good for you. God wanted good for Saul. His plans for you are good. Now, this does not mean that everything that happens to you will be good. This does not mean that everything will feel good. This doesn't mean you will like everything that happens in this world. That's not, but God wants good for you. I know this because his ultimate destiny for you is sitting beside him in heaven. So I'm, and that's good. So his ultimate destiny for you is good. And his current destiny for you is that he wants to get heaven into you so that you can be a force for good on this side of heaven. So, I mean, his plans for you is good. I just want you to know that. God wants good for you. Then Samuel gives to Saul what seemed like simple instructions. This is what he says to him. Go down ahead of me to Gigal. I will surely come down to you to sacrifice burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. But you must wait. Why don't you just read that with me? But, read the rose red words. You must wait. You must wait. Seven days until I come to you, until I come to you, and I will tell you what you are to do. These are simple instructions. Now, a little quick word here about where's this place, Gigal. It was most likely not a city. There's actually scholars and archeologists, they've never discovered a city named Gigal, and most scholars believe that because it wasn't actually a city. The word for gigal in Hebrew means something that rolls or will or that is round or that is a circle. It was most likely, it was most likely more like a place of worship. In fact, 38 of the 39 times that the word gigal is used in the Old Testament, the word the is in front of it in the actual Hebrew text. So it is meet me at the gigal. So this is pre-temple. So there's, the Hebrews don't have a temple at this point. So most scholars believe that the Gigal was a place of sacrifice, a place of worship, a place of gathering, probably in a circular form. Maybe they'd set up stones in a circle. Uh, maybe it, it was some kind of, uh, they made it constructed some kind of, uh, some kind of uh, building in a circle. But it was this place where at the center of it was the place where they would sacrifice and this is where they would get ready to go into battle. So he says, before you go, before you ever do that, before you meet at the Gagal and go into battle or whatever it is, I want you to wait on me so I can tell you what to do as the spiritual mouthpiece of God. So after this, it's a simple instruction, right? When you're going to the Gagal, wait on me to get there so that I can give you spiritual direction from God because Samuel is still the prophet of God for Israel. And then after they have this, they part ways, and this is what it says happened. Samuel says God's words really come true for Saul. This is pretty awesome. As Saul turned to leave Samuel, God changed Saul's heart, and all these signs were fulfilled that day. When he and his servants arrived at Gibeah, a procession of prophets met him, and the Spirit of God came powerfully upon him. He was changed into a different person. The people loved him. Samuel was excited for him and proud of him. I mean, this is the kind of king everyone sees it and his prowess was seen early on. 
Early in his career as king, the Ammonites uh, laid siege to one of the Israelites' city. Now, the Ammonites had been a thorn in the side of the Israelites forever. They worshiped the pagan god Molech. They were a brutal people. One of their chief practices was child sacrifice. They were just a brutal people who had just caused the Israelites all kind of trouble. Saul, by the power of God in him and the full of the spirit, garners up an army of 330,000 men and ransacks the Ammonites. Yes! That's what they're all thinking. This, this is what we were talking about. This is the kind of king that we have said we always needed. This is the king that we always wanted. A king who could show all the nations how powerful our God is and that we are God's people. He is powerful. He is courageous. But who wouldn't be with 330,000 men? Right? Well, after he defeats the Ammonites, he whittles down his army to only 3,000 because they're in peacetime. But in the middle of this peacetime, his son Jonathan, who was about 15 at the time, um, sort of causes a skirmish with the Philistines. And they make their way to attack the Israelites. Now, this is just a good lesson for you students, um, 14, 15, 16 year old. You know, I mean, uh, you know, don't pick a fight that your dad has to fight for you, okay? But he's going to have to fight this fight that his son picked. And they go to the Gagal. This is where they gather. He gets those 3,000 men and they gather, but it is a pretty terrifying idea of what they're gonna have to face. In 1 Samuel, it says that the Philistines had 3,000 chariots and 6,000 charioteers. And then Samuel writes, they had soldiers more, as many as the sands as the seashore. Kind of like one of those scenes of a movie, like where you just like look and all you can see, you can't even see land, you just see people, just soldiers. And, of course, they're, they're pretty scared. So they're sitting there at the Gigal, and, and they're, they're waiting to ask, you know, um, you know kind of for instructions. The 3,000 men are there, and Saul's there. Samuel's not there. And so they wait, and they wait, and they wait. They can hear the sounds of the horses getting closer every single day. They wait. They're singing, he's in the waiting. They're singing the song. Seven days come, no, Samuel. The horses, and the, guy, the guys begin to scatter. The soldiers begin to leave. They start thinking like, I'm, I'm out of here. It's a no-win situation. I'm not putting my life on the line for this. I'm not risking my life for this. And they, they begin to scatter. So, so they've waited, but no, Samuel. So Saul decides, Saul decides to take matters into his own hands. But can we just, before he does it, can I just... Can I just read aloud, about a year before this happened, do you remember that instruction in chapter 10 that Samuel gave Saul? Remember what he said? Go down ahead of me to Gagal. I will surely come down to you and sacrifice burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. They want to make a sacrifice to the Lord before they go into battle, before they take any kind of big endeavor. But you must wait seven days until I come to you. Well, what if seven days come and, uh, and, and I waited the seven days, you're not here. Can I just go ahead and know, I want you to wait until I come to you and tell you what you are to do. But Saul decides to take matters into his own hands. He waits seven days and then this happens. So Saul says, bring me the burnt offering. Bring it to me, I'll do it myself. 
and the fellowship offerings. And Saul offered up the burnt offering. That decision would change his life forever. Here's something I've learned the hard way. Refusing to wait on God rarely works out. Have you ever noticed this? Is this, any, is this anybody else? Hello? Like, I can tend to be pushy with God. Are any of you ever pushy with God? It's probably just me. Okay, okay, we got a few folks down here, right? Thank you. I can tend to be pushy with God and I can tend to take matters into my own hands, but refusing to wait on God, the refusing to wait on God's timing rarely works out. No one has a story that says, well, I was waiting on God to move, but then I just took matters into my own hands and man, did that work out great. That's never the story, right? I should have waited. I should have had patience. I should have trusted. I, I, I should have believed that God was gonna come through even if obeying means waiting, even if waiting makes no sense. And wouldn't you know it, just in that moment. Listen to the next verse. Just as he finished making the offering, Samuel arrived. And Saul went out to greet him. Hey! Would you just read those red words with me? What have you done? What have you done? Asked Samuel. Saul replied, when I saw that the men were scattering and that you did not come at the set time and that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash, you see what had happened was, I saw all these things happening. I thought now that the Philistines will come down against me at the Gigal, and I have not sought the Lord's favor, so I felt, I mean, I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering. Excuses, excuses, excuses. Right, I mean, I just thought, I mean, I had an idea, I, I thought, I, 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 and his reasons are irrational and wrong-headed. Most of our bad decisions are because of stinking thinking. Because we're not thinking right. And it often comes from feelings. It's so interesting because you don't hear that phrase in the Bible much, right? I felt, I felt, you know, I felt scared. I felt like the Philistines were crashing in on me. I felt like all my men were gonna scatter and leave. So I just felt compelled to do it. I, I just felt like I should do it. I felt like I needed to seek the Lord's favor, which was ridiculous because he already had the Lord's favor. The spirit was already in him and God said he would be with him and that he would bless whatever his hands did, that he would give him success. But his feelings, he got in his feelings and he got stupid. And you know, oftentimes your feelings will lie to you. They will lie to you and they will make you make decisions that aren't wise decisions, that aren't good decisions, that aren't holy decisions, that aren't godly decisions because you were feeling lonely, because you were feeling scared, because you were feeling sad, because you were feeling mad. It's not that your feelings aren't real, it's just that they make the reality in your head not exactly real. And if I could have encouraged Saul and if we could encourage us, I would say trust your faith over your feelings. Trust your faith over your feelings. Don't trust your feelings. Your feelings will lead to stinking thinking. One of my favorite pastors says it this way, high emotion, low wisdom. 
The higher your emotions go, the lower your wisdom seems to be. So if you find yourself like I'm just really emotional, it can be good or bad emotions, but I'm, I realize that I am at high emotions right now and I probably need to wait till those emotions come because I am more likely to make a poor decision to make a bad decision, to have a terrible defining moment. And this next passage, Samuel's response to him was the catalyst for this series in, in my heart. When I read it for the first time, it sent chills down my spine. It still sends chills down my spine. And I want you to listen to what it says. You, you, remember what I said? Like, who, who's the common denominator? It's you, it's me. This is on you, Saul. You have done a foolish thing Samuel said, you have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. And listen to this. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. But now, your destiny has changed, Saul. But now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, appointed him ruler of his own people because you have not kept the Lord's command because you have done this. Samuel says the Lord will take away his favor that was promised to him. He had wanted to establish his kingdom forever, but he will give that kingdom to someone else, someone whose heart is aligned with God, a young man that will find out to be named David. All because, all because, not because of some big, huge, grave sin. He was sacrificing to the Lord, but he took a shortcut. And what I can tell you is you can think, you can think a shortcut is no big deal. I'll just sacrifice, I'll just do it. I mean, remember, this is not some grave sin, it's just a shortcut. But shortcuts can derail your destiny. Shortcuts can derail your destiny. Shortcuts and obedience can short-circuit your future. Shortcut decisions can lead to disasters. Shortcuts can derail your destiny. Where are you taking a shortcut? You taking a shortcut in your integrity, in your business, and you think nobody's gonna find out about it? You taking a shortcut in your marriage and you think she's not gonna find out, he's not gonna find out? You taking a shortcut with your money, dealing with a business partner, the IRS? something financially your spouse doesn't know about, a shortcut in the way that you're generous with God and his church. You're taking a shortcut in how you love other people and you say, I just can't love other people like myself because I, you know, I was just in a mood. It was a bad day. It's just a shortcut. It's just a shortcut. What's the harm? The harm is shortcuts can derail your destiny. And this was beginning of a long downward spiral for Saul. All because of one shortcut that led to a lifetime of worse decisions, trying to cover his ego and his reputation. And if he had only known what hung in the balance, if he'd only known the cost of what seemed like one small shortcut, 
So because of Saul's action, God calls a young boy named David to be king. And years later, after David finally took the throne, I want you to listen to what God says to David, promises to David. This is unbelievable. Now, I will make your name great, David, like the names of the greatest men on earth. When your days are over and you will rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom, your house and your kingdom will endure forever because he had told Saul, remember now your kingdom will not endure forever, but now David's will before me and your throne will be established forever. David, I'm going to make your name great. Like the names of the greatest men on earth. We have a database for our church of basically every person who's ever attended, filled out a connect card, um, checked in their kids, uh, registered online, given a written a check, any, any way we get people's information, they go into our database, many of you get emails. We have 19,513 names in our database over almost 30 years. 164 are named David. That's one out of every 118 people who have ever walked through the doors of Mountaintop is named David. I will make your name Great. Do you know how many Saul's we have out of 19,513? Zero. And check this out. A thousand years later, God would keep the second part of that promise. You see, God had promised that he was going to build a nation, a monarchy, not just give them a king. He was going to start a monarchy that would last forever. And we miss this almost every Christmas When we read this story, this piece of the story that's just a background noise, it's just a backdrop to the Christmas story, and we miss the significance of this one line of Saul's part and his shortcut in this story when we read in Luke 2, part of the Christmas story every year. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. David, put it in the chat, David, David, David. If Saul had only known that shortcuts can derail your destiny. You see, God's a promise keeper. And his plans for a monarchy that would establish a kingdom that would bless all peoples wouldn't be thwarted because of Saul's actions, Saul's part in the story would just go unwritten. And I don't know about you, I have no idea what God's plan is for me, but man, I don't want to miss it because of one bad defining moment. I know what some of you are thinking. Carter, what if I already had mine? What if I've already taken a shortcut What if I've already made a bad decision? What if I've already made a mistake? What if I've already got a defining moment and I'm living with the consequences and I'm afraid that my story is is forever written? And I wanna tell you, I've got good news for you. Last week, I got to go to Oklahoma City to a pastor's conference and it happened to be the 26th year anniversary of the bombing at the Federal Building in Oklahoma City. Some of you may remember that. Killed 180 plus people. And while we were there, we got to go to the memorial. 
And I don't know if you've ever been there. It's a beautiful memorial. They got places, a place for all the names of all the people that were killed there. And they've got a reflection pool. And at one end of that reflection pool, they have this huge structure with just the simple, simple graphic of 901 on it. That was when the bomb hit. Some of the pastors there talked about what it was like uh, that someone who lived seven miles away had roof damage. One of the pastors said his wife was 17 miles from downtown when it happened and she could hear it and feel it. It was such a powerful explosion. And at the, so at the end, when they built this, when the people of the city, when the leaders of the city built this, uh, this monument and this memorial, at one end of that reflection pool, they put that 901 because they said that was really when the bomb hit and that was the end date for what Oklahoma City had been. It took two minutes for the smoke and the rubble to clear where people could actually see in front of their face. And at the other end of that memorial, they built an identical structure with 903 on it. Because they said, the leaders of the city said 903 was when they decided at that moment would be the birth date of what Oklahoma City would become in the future because they decided that they would not be known as that city where that bomb went off. And I know that some of you have a 901 moment. And it was when the bomb went off. When she found out. When he found out. When you got caught. When you got arrested. When it got real. When you made a mistake. And you have wondered if that moment would define your life but the good news of Jesus Christ is that his mercies are new every morning and that he pours on us grace over grace and that the cross redeems our past and you do not have to be that person where that thing happened. It does not have to be your defining moment. You can be a 903 person. And today can be the day that defines the rest of your life, if you say, Jesus, I'm in, I want a fresh start, I want to be a new creation, and I do not want to be defined by what happened in the past, but who you are and what I can be in the future. That is what I want to define the rest of my life. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you that uh, you give us new mercies every morning. And thank you that your grace is abundant. Where sin increases, grace increases all the more. Thank you that we are forgiven and redeemed. And some of my brothers and sisters in this room wonder if that's true because of a bomb that went off in their life. And my prayer, Lord, is that, that everyone in this room would make the decision to not walk out these doors unchanged. But this would be a defining moment for the next chapter, and the chapter after, and the chapter after. In Jesus' name.